Welcome to MedTech Stories. I'm your host, Vishali. Our guest today is Pharaoh Schneeber. She recently joined Serapetics as the VP of International Regulatory and Global Compliance. Previously, she was the VP of Regulatory and R&D at PQ Bypass. And although she's very excited for her new role, she looks forward to watching PQ Bypass and Endologics continue their success from afar. Pharaoh started her career as a reviewer at the FDA and then transitioned into industry. Tune in to hear her story about growing up in a very tight-knit Filipino family, bringing her background and culture into how she leads teams, and how she's discovered and honed her leadership style. Hi, Pharaoh. It's been great uh, getting to know you, and I'm super excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you. I am excited to be here. I've given our audience a little bit of background about you and your career, um, but would love for you to give us a brief uh, overview of how you came about your career and a little bit about you personally as well. So I am or was uh, a biomedical engineer by training. Um, And like all biomedical engineers, I dreamed of becoming a doctor. (laughs) And Um, I learned very quickly, at least going through my bachelor's degree, that, you know, this wasn't for me. Taking the MCATs, doing okay on the MCATs, it just didn't feel like something I wanted to spend a ton of time doing. So I went and got got my master's degree, still didn't really know what to do. And then as soon as I graduated, I quickly started looking for jobs because in six months, I have to pay student loan debt. And during the course of, of looking for jobs, um, and this is way back when, so I'm pretty old, uh, we, no one taught anybody in engineering school, in biomedical engineering programs, what the FDA was. So I actually found a fellowship at FDA. I think at the time it was like Yahoo search or whatever. They they have and they I think they still do have it a medical device fellowship and I applied to that and then this is how uninformed I was of the med tech industry I only applied to orthopedic companies I had no idea who Boston Scientific was no idea who Medtronic was or Abbott so it was like Stryker Depew Smith and Nephew. Um, and then this FDA fellowship program. And at the time they had really long, complicated interview processes for engineers. And I was way more focused on paying off my student loans. So the FDA was the first, I guess, organization to give me a job offer. It was more money than I've ever seen in my entire lifetime at the time. So I just signed it off, uh, borrowed, you know, some money to Uh, moved down to the D.C. area from my parents and, you know, started working for FDA Um, and picked up my first 510K, I think, like the second day on the job and was like, what is this? (laughs) What am I supposed to do? Um, And then I was at FDA for six years in the interventional cardiology devices branch I worked for a wonderful boss named Ashley Bohm. Um, she is now the office director of the, I think, pharmaceutical quality group at FDA. Uh, she's one of the few people that started off in devices and was able to get a substantial leadership role in the center of drugs. So um, a lot of what I learned that I liked as a leader came from her very early on in my career. Um, And then in 2011, I made the leap into industry because I was dating a guy (laughs) that was living in Seattle. And we had been together for two years and we both made the decision, both in air quotes, that, you know, I should move back out west. So I'm originally from Oregon and uh, not very difficult to get a job in industry as an FDA reviewer. <laughs> I think uh, I was introduced to uh, Biotronic by a former Biotronic employee who worked at FDA. 
Um, and then I worked there for about a year and then did the one thing that everybody told you not to do, which was job hop. Um, I got recruited, I think a year later to work for Medtronic Diabetes. And then a year later, I got recruited to work for Spectronetics. And then I stayed in Spectronetics for about five years, I think a year and a half of that five years was uh, following the Philips uh, acquisition of Spectronetics. And then the last two years or so, two and a half, three years has been um, with the startup Peaky Bypass. So you've had the the spectrum of experiences, you know, really at the agency, um, if we want to call it that, and then large companies and startup. So two two follow up questions. One, how did you feel um, when you were job hopping, and, and kind of tell me why you said that was you know quote unquote something people tell you not to do? Because I've definitely been told that too. One of the primary reasons people tell you not to job hop which is something that I don't necessarily subscribe to nowadays is that, you know, you need to show longevity and commitment to a company. And I actually don't agree with that. I think you shouldn't job hop until you've shown you can finish something. Um, And in the world of, of class three medical devices, uh, you're barely past like the research phase after a year. Um, so, you know, you really have to be there, I would say, the length of a 5, 10, just show that you've done something and, and accomplished something. And I got to be honest with you, at the time, I didn't really think much about it because, you know, I was chasing the money. One, com- you know, going to Biotronic, they, they paid me more money than I ever had as a lead reviewer in the D.C. metro area. Uh, the cost of living was lower in Portland, Oregon. And then, you know, kind of the same thing at Medtronic, um, where, you know, they gave me more money to move to LA. And I, I think the one thing that I learned in those situations was one, if you're going to leave, it's not just leaving a job, you may have to move you got to pack. And as silly as that sounds, you really need to ask yourself, you know, are you willing to, to move across the country or halfway across the country for a job? Um, I think it would have been more difficult to job hop if I was married with the family at the time. But I, I really didn't think twice about it. And, um, you know, I learned some things in, in those roles. Um, at Biotronic, I learned the pain that is no longer being a regulator. <laughs> and then at Medtronic Diabetes, I, I got to delve into, you know, a non-cardiovascular product for the first time, which was super duper interesting. But besides those things, it's all really what I could learn in that short amount of time. Um, And it's not, it wasn't, obviously it was not insurmountable when it came to interviews, but, you know, if it was, it was one advice that I could give somebody is, you know, make sure you're, this is so cheesy, make sure you're running towards something versus away from something. It's it's definitely something I've heard from a lot of my mentors too. And I try and ask myself that, right? Like, am I trying to run away from being frustrated with a job or being frustrated with the boss or being frustrated with something? Or do I feel like I've accomplished something here and I'm going towards another bigger, more audacious, more big, hairy, audacious goal? I think the the one thing I will add to that, because I, I, th- I do think it's, it's unrealistic to think that some component of looking for another job is about not being satisfied with what you have, whether it's you've topped out, whether it's other things. But, you know, what I, I've told people is that your primary driver should be about becoming better. However you want to define that, um, far be it for me to define that for somebody else. But, you know, there's always a little bit of like 
grass is greener on the other side and that's okay. Um, but if you want to make sure that you are at peace with the job hopping, because I, I was asked that question for <laughs> even my interview with Peaky Bypass, my boss, Heather asked me about it. Um, and it had been five years, you know, you're always going to get asked that question for a while and it's going to take a while for you to, to, to overcome uh, that answer. I will say, or that issue, I will say the longer you work, the higher up you go, it makes a little bit more sense that you have shorter durations because especially in the startup world or the med tech industry companies uh, get bought out, organizations change very quickly, and the higher up you go, the more disposable you become. <laughs> so, yep. Um, but yeah, so I've, I've been with PQ Bypass uh, since November of 2018, and uh, April of this year, we got acquired by uh, Deerfield slash Endologic. So we're going through They've been great. Um, probably one of the most amicable transitions I've, I've seen. Um, I've only seen one other one, but they, they're a great organization. So I'm glad it was them. Okay. And then I, I had another question. So because you've seen the variety of um, industry as well as FDA and, and startup, which do you prefer and what do you think is most exciting for you? What I prefer is, I think, the the small to mid-sized companies. You know, you've got what I would like to describe and what other people have described, the, the cash to do some stuff, um, but also the, the flexibility to, to get things done quickly. Not to say that, you know, a Medtronic or a Boston Scientific can't get stuff done quickly, I think they can do it quickly relative to their organization. But if you look at the different sized companies, there's definitely faster decision-making with smaller bureaucracies. So um, I think what it took me a while to kind of figure that out. But for me, I, I like being able to be involved not only in, some of the day-to-day -day stuff, but also the business aspects of an organization. So, yeah, I think for me, Volcano was my first company and it was definitely mid-size. Um, and then getting acquired by Philips was a totally different world. Um, so I, I think I can echo some of your thoughts that, you know, it's it's very different being at a mid-size to a large company because the, the way that they move, the types of processes and stuff are just very, very um different and elaborate sometimes. So tell me a little bit more about what inspired you to get involved in med tech. Is it kind of the, the doctor biomedical engineer uh, thoughts or, or what happened? There are, are so many different ways to help patients besides just doing direct patient care. All due respect to our frontline workers. And one of the reasons why I really like med tech is that you can help more people all at the same time by providing them with products that are safe and effective and, and, and solve real world problems. So that's what initially bringing me into med tech was just, this is my degree. What kept me in med tech was, you know, that realization that I can still, I guess, for the lack of a better term, fulfill my, my goal of being a doctor or previous goal of being a doctor um, without having to go to medical school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can, I can echo that too. Um, I was definitely similar to you in that, uh, biomedical engineer, pre-med, I'm cat, all, all of the above. So tell me more about you as a person in Oregon, DC, the, you know, tell me more about your personal life. I actually immigrated to, to the U.S. on, oh, if my brother's listening to this, I hope I got this date right, October 22nd, 1988. Uh, my family is originally from the Philippines. Um, as part of that uh, description, I have a younger brother 
who also went to engineering school. Uh, he works for Ball Aerospace. And <clears throat> we started off where every single, I think, Filipino immigrant <laughs> starts off, which is San Diego. Um, my grandfather was actually in the U.S. Navy, and he was able to bring us over after my uh, parents got married. So I was about, I think, nine. We were in San Diego for, I think it was four years. And then my father moved us up to Salem, Oregon. California, even at that time, was super duper expensive. And, you know, he wasn't sure if he would be able to own a house in the San Diego area. So we moved to, to Salem, Oregon in the middle of, I think my beginning of my eighth grade year. Um, and I basically grew up and went through high school in, in Oregon, played the trumpet, did marching band, tennis, um, <laughs> sang, all of the normal things that you do when you're trying to find hobbies that get you out of the house and away from your parents. Um, and then once I graduated high school, I went to Syracuse University and went as far away as humanly possible from my parents. I, I, I had this notion in my head that if I went to like Oregon State or U of O, that my parents were going to just suddenly pop in over the weekend and visit, which is um, very egotistical, but I had that fear. So I went as far away as humanly possible. Um, and then uh, did a bachelor's, then a master's, moved down to DC, but, um, and, and just kind of the, the discussion that we had about just moving around uh, with my career. And I actually, um, <laughs> the, the funny fact, there's a fun fact about me and my brother. My brother and I have lived in the same cities since we graduated from college. So each city that I've been in, my brother has subsequently either been there or I was there first or he was there first, but we've lived wherever we've lived before. And now he lives up in Boulder. So we're both in Colorado. Um, and that's, it's weird. It's very weird. We discovered that a couple of years ago. Um, but my family is really close. Um, we are uh, loud when we're together. My husband says that we're really, really loud. Um, we spend a lot of time laughing. And I think that's where I get how my parents raise us is where I get my, my straight shooter uh, personality because we are not afraid to call someone's idea stupid <laughs> and we are also not afraid to tell someone that well I think your idea is stupid so um there were some growing pains of like how that translated outside of the family but um yeah my I credit my parents for um definitely a lot of my I would say leadership style aspects. How do you like Colorado? Are you are you a very outdoorsy person? No, 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 no. Camping, uh, sleeping on the floor was not something that I grew up with. So we never went camping growing up because when my father was growing up in the Philippines, uh, sleeping on the floor was like a normal thing. And so... When, it's not like an extravagant adventurous. No, it is not an adventure. <laughs> this is how you sleep and it's very uncomfortable. So growing up, it, you know, camping was, you know, going to a motel on the coast of Oregon <laughs> and hanging out, um, which is sad because my husband's a camper. Um, but funny enough, I actually know a lot of Colorado natives that don't, you know, hike a 14er every other weekend. Um, but it, it is kind of one of those things where you feel, I mean, you live in California, you feel super guilty when it's nice outside and you don't go outside, <laughs> but you really just want to stay inside. 
So I get really excited when it's overcast here, but <laughs> it gives you an excuse and justification. Yeah. You know, like it's cold. Uh, the, the sun's not out. So I'm going to sit up, sit inside, which makes no sense, but it's what I rationalize in my head. Um, but I, I do like it and I like it a lot. Um, I think if we could figure out how to have Oregon's greenery in combination with how much sun Colorado gets, like that would be my perfect environment. So tell me more about, uh, you know, what was your favorite challenge uh, at the FDA? Kind of just going back to a little bit about your career. Going along the lines of being the wolf, I was notorious for writing deficiencies to companies that may have been perceived as aggressive. Um, you weren't the favorite reviewer then. <laughs> no, 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 no. I was not the favorite reviewer. Like I would highlight every single thing I did not like about your report and then tell you why <laughs> and then tell you to fix it. And uh, one, two of my closest friends at FDA, um, Heather Agler and Katie O'Callaghan, used to have to QC my deficiencies um, before it would go to my boss. And it was funny because it took me a long time to figure out, like, what are you talking about? Like, why? What do you mean it sounds mean? <laughs> and uh, it, it took me a while watching them edit my deficiencies to um, figure out a way to point out what was wrong, why it was wrong, and what I needed corrected. And it wasn't until I actually went into industry and received a letter from my former mentee where I realized how it impacts, you know, the, the well-being of like an R&D organization where they, when they've put in so much work and then you got this one person, you know, sitting in DC that you've never seen before, basically telling you, you did everything wrong. Um, but that, that was actually quite, um, it was quite difficult for me just because I, I really just didn't see it. You know, it didn't make any sense to me. So um, many, many thanks to, Katie and Heather for <laughs> um, helping me through that process. That was, that was hard. It probably took me, oh, geez, probably m m most of my time there because I would have these long diatribes and they would like shorten it to something that was a bit more compact. But that was probably one of the hardest things to do is to not, you know, over scrutinize a simple tensile testing report. <laughs> so which perspective were you coming from it um, when you were writing the, the long um, reports? Oh, so when I would write long deficiencies, what would happen is that I would find something wrong. There was always something wrong with the report. And then I would just start digging and digging and digging. And then I would find like in one report, every single thing that I essentially disagreed with, disliked it. Um, and, and from my perspective, I had this attitude of like, well, you should know better, right? You guys are the product experts. You do this all the time. <laughs> Tensile testing is not that complicated. Um, so I had this mentality of like, you should know better. Like you were you're designing these products um, to be used with or implanted in people. And I, until I came into industry, I, I, it, it took me a long time to realize, like, I have not met an engineer, a salesperson, a marketing person, a clinical person, a CEO who wants to actively commercialize an unsafe product. What's not safe for patients is not good for business. Um, but I think, you know, it wasn't until I, I saw it from a different perspective that it really kind of sunk in, um, that, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect report. Every company has their own 
definition of, of what a good report looks like. And it doesn't jive with mine, but it doesn't necessarily mean either of us are wrong. So that was probably one of the hardest things for me to learn is, is tact <laughs> while I was at FDA. Yeah. I mean, um, to be totally honest, I, I don't think that I'm necessarily the most tactful person either. <laughs> <laughs> it, it actually comes from my upbringing too, right? Being, being an immigrant, my parents are very straightforward and very, you know, like you said, straight shooters. <laughs> if something's wrong, it's going to be shared. Um, and <laughs> Wildly maybe- <laughs> and, and, but to many other people in the room. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's taken me a while too to realize like, okay, so if you have feedback, what is the best way to share it? Um, and kind of what's the most tactful way? And and um I definitely do have like a conscious inner dialogue um when I when I go through those moments. So um after being on the other side of it, um now being uh, you know, the head of regulatory uh, and R&D at PQ Bypass, like how have you managed your reports to the FDA? On this side, what I've learned that's most effective, some people want to take the just, you know, data dump things at, at F to FDA. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, and what I try to do is I try to pay attention to the review team, you know, what, who, who is this report ultimately going to? Um, you know, in the medical device industry, we don't just write reports for fun. <laughs> we write reports to characterize the product so that we can implement a manufacturing change or implement a design change or implement the commercialize a new product. And part of that process is, is the regulatory body, whether it's FDA, BSI, PMDA, and what I try to do is I try to make sure the reports are geared towards them um, while also including elements that are important to the company. Um, and I think that has been the best way that I've seen do it. I think that having a one size fits all approach um, when it comes to test reports, uh, doesn't serve anybody very well. I, I mean, there are certainly basic elements that need to be there from just a good documentation standpoint, but as it relates to what you emphasize, what you de-emphasize, what you analyze and how you analyze it, how much context you bring into it, it really depends on the audience. Sounds like kind of tailoring and, and it's it's as if you're writing an email, right? It's it's who's your audience and how are you communicating to the audience? So keeping that top of mind really helps, um, it sounds like, because then you can tailor your content appropriately. And then especially with your insights at the FDA, you can kind of look at who the reviewers are, I'm guessing, and kind of figure out what the, the biggest um, key points for them would be. I mean, the way I look at regulatory is, you know, we're, I think every single department is a sales department. You just have a different customer, right? Marketing folks, clinical folks, it's physicians, regulatory people, it's, um, you know, regulators, quality people, it's inspectors. And if you want to be an effective advocate for any organization, one, you have to really believe in, in the product that you're working on. And, and two, you have to pay attention to your customer. So, you know, if I'm getting feedback that, hey, your reports don't include enough context for this, right? I'm going to try to understand, you know, well, what are you looking for exactly um, when we talk to the FDA or BSI? And, and I try to make sure that we as an organization you know, make the right adjustments so that we can, you know, de- deliver the product that they need to effectively do their job. Um, and I, I think the more people think of regulatory that way, that it's not a 
um, it's not just pushing paper, right? Um, if you get that kind of belief or attitude, um, you're, you're never going to give FDA a good submission. You know, you always hear um, people saying that, you know, FDA doesn't get good submissions, but if, if you don't pay attention to your customer and if you don't listen to what their needs are so they can do their jobs effectively, it doesn't matter how little or as much detail as you put in the submission, if it's not the right information, you're making their job difficult. So tell me more about your growth uh, into a leader and kind of what your leadership style is um, and kind of what, um, what's been the, the most challenging part about growing into a leader. The funny part is I didn't, I didn't know well, well, you know, earlier in my career whether or not I wanted to lead people. Um, <laughs> it, it was something that just kind of through the process of elimination – I like juggling a lot of different things in the air and I like leading a group of people towards that, you know, same common goal. It took me a while to figure that out. Mm, Probably even in, in the middle of, um, becoming a, a reg manager at Spectronetics, you know, I really didn't know what that meant. It was like, okay, so like five people are going to work for me now. Um, but, you know, I knew that I wanted to do it well. And so I did my own self-development of what it meant to be a leader and figured it out that way. Um, So it was a lot of stumbling blocks, a lot of um, mistakes were made in the process. But despite the mistakes that I've made, you know, I still really wanted to um, maintain that leadership role within the organization. And, you know, especially as a female, and growing up the way we did, right, you you see, in, in society, there is the prototypical female leader, socially acceptable female leader. There is the socially acceptable male leader. And, you know, you see them rising in organizations very quickly. And I've tried in so many different ways to embody that, um, dress the right way carry myself the right way. Um, And it really felt disingenuous. And I think most people, whether you're talking about the service industry or a high tech industry, they can, they can see a fake from far away (laughs) pretty easily. Um, And, you know, it took me a long time to really come at peace with the fact that like, I am a direct person. I have to speak my truth, whether people want to hear it or not. (laughs) It it has to be out there. Um, Otherwise, you know, I can't look at myself in the mirror. Um, And I think that I had this false mis like, I guess, false idea in my head that I, I, well, I can't be a good female leader. I can't be a good leader if, if I'm, I'm not the socially acceptable leader. Um, and it wasn't until I actually came to Peaky Bypass where they really valued that, that, you know, that was sort of, they would look to me to be like, okay, so what, (laughs) what's real, what's not real. That, that I started learning better ways to still be a straight shooter, but an effective straight shooter, right? If you're an ineffective straight shooter, it doesn't matter if you're right or not. Um, but if you're effective about how you go about doing it, yeah, it's no fun to hear the truth um, all the time from a small person, but, you know, it helps the organization move forward. So um, I didn't learn that geez, until, you know, 
the last couple of years that, you know, I can still be myself um, and a better version of myself and, and lead people um, and not be what my perception of a socially acceptable female leader is. And um, I really, you know, have my deepest thanks to, you know, Rich Ferrari and, and Heather Simonson for you know, helping me do that. Cause they, they would help me kind of tug and pull on certain things like, well, that, that phrase <laughs> probably not effective. I would probably use this phrase instead, but you know, no matter what it, I still, I was still, a I was still, what did my boss call me? The, the wolf. Yeah. Tell me more about being called the wolf, right? Like how, how, how did that make you feel? Well, it, it was, um, it was a bit off-putting because I, when you're in a room full of executives, right, you, you expect a certain amount of like pomp and circumstance and decorum of some sort. And I am not a very formal person. You know, I will say dude to my boss and, um, on occasion, unfortunately, also swear, but it was actually quite refreshing because I was, I looked at her and went, you're referencing Pulp Fiction. Um, So that was actually super, uh, I found it funny, um, but ironically enough, if actually, if you go back to all my bosses all the way down to, to FDA, it's pretty consistent. So my boss at FDA always said, if you want something done and you want something done now and done well, just give it to Pharaoh. <laughs> um, and it was sort of the the same thing here. And, you know, she, she and Rich really, you know, expected me to help fix problems in the organization. But when she first said it, I thought, this is the place for me. Because if you feel comfortable calling me out on my personality quirks, because I've spent the last however many months calling everybody out on the truth, then like this is, this is, you know, we can all laugh about it. Like this is the place for me. So I actually found it really refreshing to, <laughs> to hear a Pulp Fiction reference and then be referred to as uh, Harvey Keitel and uh, Winston the Wolf. I actually went home that night and like watched the movie and went, I mean, fair point, you know, like, just, you know, I don't go on a murder spree, but like, yeah, a lot of personality quirks that are pretty consistent. (laughs) Can't deny it. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, I think that that's an important point, right? Because if, if you are always, um, quote unquote, dishing it out, and you're also able to take it, that's kind of the key point right there, right? Because if you can always dish it out and you can't take it, then that's somewhat of an issue. But um, so how does that translate into your leadership style, right? Like, how does that translate into, you know, a few things that you care about as a leader? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, first and foremost, I, I will say, I don't think there's like a perfect recipe for the the right type of leader. I think, you know, society teaching us about socially appropriateness of of what a female leader should be or a male leader should be should definitely erase that from your head. You are who you are. You're either someone that values directness or more teamwork or more nurturing or more data, and there is absolutely nothing wrong with you, right? You could be more reserved. You can be more outgoing. Um, There's nothing wrong with each individual's leadership style. I will say that you need to be honest about it. Otherwise, you're going to go through a very long struggle of figuring that out because you're always going to be disappointed with yourself. Um, So I would say, one, you really need to know who you want to be and be honest about it. Um, But I will say out of all, and I've had different leaders. I've had leaders who are very reserved. I have leaders who have been really nurturing. I've had leaders who 
um, are more direct, but they do two things really well. The first thing they do is they earn your respect and your trust immediately. And that's really important because sometimes as a leader, you have to get people to do things that they don't want to do, um, which I think is is very difficult for smart people to wrap their head around. Um, but that is something that, that happens quite frequently and more frequently than most people think. And the other thing that they've all been able to do is that they've got this like commanding presence that basically drives everyone towards the same commitment and resolve to a very common goal. So, and, and commanding seems like a little direct, but it, I, I've seen it in, in so many different people, whether you're reserved or not, they have a presence when they're on the phone or when they walk in the room that when they speak, people genuinely listen and you know, that's how you get people to make good decisions without you having to follow them around in the building. Like they understand what the goal is. They understand your expectations and they go and they execute it beautifully. So what, what I would say is I don't think there's a perfect leadership style. I think everyone who does it well, though, does those two things for their team. Uh, I think somebody at some point told me that you're not really a leader if nobody's following you, <laughs> right? So if, if you can't gain the trust and you can't, um, you know, command that presence in the room, then you're not a leader. You're not, nobody's following you. You're not guiding anybody towards a common goal. So it sounds like, you know, you've had a lot of uh, great mentors and a lot of great feedback um, throughout your career as you've grown into the various roles and kind of really, um, gained insight into who you are. So who do you turn to for that inspiration or mentorship and um, whose voices do you listen to? I think the, the first voice I typically listen to is, is my dad. I think one advice I would give to people is that, you know, when you're looking for opinions, you need to make sure that list is short and you need to make sure that list is brutally honest with you because if if all you want to hear is the stuff you want to hear all the time, you're not going to get any better. And um, as I already mentioned, <laughs> uh, my 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 family values brutal honesty. And you know, I'm I'm 41 years old, and and there have been instances where I talk to my dad about something, and he'll just say, "You need to grow up and just do this," <laughs> which is really hard to hear at 41. Really difficult, even more difficult to hear when you were younger, but. Um, you know, my dad definitely is one of them. And, you know, mentors that I've had that um, that are on my short list are, are people that do that for me. Um, my friend John Pedersen, who, uh, <laughs> a funny story of how I met uh, John, actually interviewed for StellarX, DCB RA manager role at Covidian at the same time as I interviewed for the role at Spectronetics. And I met John during the interview process and I still tell him to this day, he is the hardest interview I've ever had in my entire life. But uh, we, we kicked it off really well. And while we were on the StellarX program, I mean, we had a very compatible work style. Like he can be brutally honest I can be brutally honest. And when it comes to mentoring or coaching or leadership, um, I definitely uh, lean on him a lot. Um, similar to other people in my life, uh, the person that actually introduced me to my former boss, Heather Simonson, June Eckert, she was also on that program. And I think it's, you know, it's finding people that you can relate to. And to be honest, all of these people have very different leadership styles, very different personalities. Some of them are reserved. Some of them are outgoing. Um, 
But the one thing they all have in common is they tell me the truth no matter what. And uh, the nice thing is I married someone who's like that. So <laughs> I also get it at home. <laughs> You're surrounded just, by it. <laughs> I'm surrounded by it. But, you know, like I said, I, I value the truth over being happy all the time. So I must be like super happy. Um, but I would say most of these relationships um, were organic um, for me, at least. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I've heard a lot in the med tech industry and what you also touched on was that you have to develop strong and meaningful relationships um, and and relationships really um, take you far uh, and long in this industry. So how have you kind of identified some of those people and how have you met them? How have you developed those relationships? Like what advice would you have for somebody who's, I don't know, two or three years out of their um, undergrad and they're looking up their org chart and they're like, how do I, how do I meet this person? Who do I talk to? You know, one of the things, like I said, my, my leadership journey was a, a pretty big struggle for me. And one of the things that I really valued the most was finding mentorship. We had a mentorship program at Spectronetics where you got paired with um, a leader in the organization who like you thought was like, you know, oh, this guy is totally, or this woman is totally level-headed, easygoing, whatever. And they are just like you, right? They, they will call you out on stuff, but they've, they've gone through the, the process of, of, for lack of a better term, growing up. Um, so I would say one of those things is, is that, and two, I think it's also being able to, um, connect with people. And the reason why I say that's important is because sometimes when you're very early on in your career, you, there's this misconception that, you know, you can just skip two levels and go get a mentor, right? Um, and just like any relationship, it, it, take it takes time to build. And so figuring out a path to getting to know your VP of R&D or um, even just a manager, it's, it's pretty simple. Go make friends. Um, it one of people too, right? right? Like I, they I think are people too. The last thing they want to talk about when they're waiting in line for lunch is your your career aspirations and your project, right? Like you need to go make real friends and connect with people. Um, actually, the when I first started working at Spectronetics, I have to tell you, I am a is this like a term? I think I've heard it before, like a social, social introvert. Like I hate talking to strangers and my job, even this job is talking to strangers. I have to talk on every new project. There is a new reviewer that I have never, ever spoken to before. Um, you know, I actually, when I first started at Spectronetics, I had 15 minutes on my calendar every day where I would go find someone I didn't know, stop by at their desk and just say hi. That's awesome. You did that kind of on your own? Yeah. It was like, I think there were a couple of times where I had like a mild panic attack before I would go over. Um, I started off a little bit with, you know, people that I had something to talk to them about. You know, maybe there I filled out something for doc control poorly or something. And, you know, I would stop by, get my questions asked, and I would then have some small talk. You then get to figure out how to make friends with different types of people, you know, people that are more reserved, people that are less reserved. And I got to know so many people at the organization. Um, 
And I, it also made me a bit more approachable. Regulatory is not known to be one of the most approachable departments in a med, med device company, but, you know, it got to a point where I would hear a problem before the manufacturing manager heard about a problem. So, you know, that's sort of my, my recommendation is, you know, if, if you want to get to know people that are several levels up, you know, figure out a way to truly go make friends. Yeah. And that's a really good, like tactical way of doing it, right? Like you had 15 minutes blocked in your calendar to look around the room and pick somebody to, to go talk to about the weather, about sports, whatever, but about something that's either work or not work related. And, you know, I got to know, you know, just as an entry or, or a, a first line manager, that's how I developed my reputation with eventually the, their boss, you know, it's like, Oh, you know, talked to Pharaoh the other day, she really helped us shoot work through this problem. And you develop a, a good reputation as being a good teammate. And that opens up um, a lot of avenues to different people that you can talk to. Um, now, I don't want to give the impression that I did that well with everybody. You know, I, I am a certain flavor to certain people and a different flavor to others. So there are obviously people that you didn't hit it off with everybody. That's surprising. I know. I know. That's and, and I think that's something that um, female professionals need to get over. That not everybody's going to like you. No. Nope. Yeah. And, and, and I also want to dispel this concept that men don't care. Men care. <laughs> They're human. They don't want people to hate them for absolutely no reason. Um, but, or even if there is a reason, I don't, I don't think there's any human being on the planet where you're male or female that um, want to be hated or not respected. You know, one thing that my dad taught me once was that not everybody has to like you, but respect you is enough. You know, you don't have to go out for beer with every single person in the company. And quite frankly, I don't think that's necessary, but you do need to make sure that even with people that you have a different opinion from, that they at least respect you enough to hear your perspective. And I think everyone can do that. Um, and it took me a, a long time to figure that out. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely in, in that regard, right? And I think similar to you, uh, a couple things that I did was I, I tried to be, at least when we were back in the office, I tried to be in the office um, as much as I could. And then as I'm walking around or as I'm by the water cooler, just making friends, like you said, like get to know somebody's name, regardless of how busy we are, we, we need to get to know cross-functional teams. And so at Ablative Solutions, we're a totally virtual company. And so when I started, I knew my boss and like my teammates. Um, and then over the pandemic, I started doing little happy hours because I was like, we, we need to get to know each other. And this is the only way that I'm going to get to know um, everybody else. So it's, it's definitely helpful, um, to, to have some of those things to get to know your teams and just like you said, make, make friends. So I want to shift a little bit to, you know, three parting questions that we ask every speaker. Um, so what is your greatest leadership superpower and how have you honed it? So I, I have a two-part answer to this question. There's there's my perceived answer to it, and then there's words other people have told me it is. Um, I think my perceived superpower is drive. I am not allergic to work. If you want to compete with how much work I can do versus how you how much work you can, like I will drive, um, and sometimes drive, you know. Uh, myself into the ground sometimes. So I, I think my, my drive is my superpower. However, um, what I have been told 
and and I think I've been told this because it's a I was forced to do it because I've had to manage my team remotely is that I I tend I have tried really hard to make sure that I manage based on the person in front of me going back to that sales concept right so it's getting to know each person and and what makes them genuinely tick um and that's how I've been able to do it with each person. That way I know that, you know, this person is probably going to need more time if we're going to need to talk through, you know, a problem we need to fix. Or this person, just give them the problem statement and just leave them alone and they'll get it done. Um, but yeah, that's that's how I do it. You get to know them at the level in which they are comfortable with you getting to know them. So second question, um, what advice do you have for other women that either, you know, aspire to start a company or be, be in leadership positions? I'm in startups, right? So I'm in the world of VCs and private equity. And sometimes, you know, people forget that companies are composed of people doing work. And I read a lot of management books. I think one of the, the ones that I like reading are the ones that are brutally honest about things. And, and I think Simon Sinek and, and Good to Great kind of put it best, um, you know, having the right people on the bus and on the right seats is really important. But that's what companies are. Companies are the people that are in it. If you don't understand that and if you don't value that, um, it, you're not going to be successful and you're not going to be, you're not going to make any money. And I've, I've been in a few situations now with FDA and even in industry where if you focus on the people, it is magical. And it's, I'm not saying that it's this utopian society where nobody has conflict. It literally feels like conflict is manageable. And you can be candid during disagreements and solve problems. And it's, it's literally management. And I think if you focus more on that, you're going to be far more successful. Because one thing that I learned in this role um, which is still part of just being young is, you know, everyone wants to be the shot caller. Everyone, whether I, I don't care who you are, but there's a little bit of that in your personality. If you want to be in, you know, in the executive roles or in the VP roles is you want to be the shot caller. And this role probably has been the most humbling experience for me because you, at least for me, I realize that every decision that I make can impact someone's addiction to food, shelter, and clothing in the company. Um, and that's a huge responsibility. And if you don't take that seriously, um, like you said, no one's going to follow you. So that would be my advice. Don't forget the people. All right. My last question. Um, who is your role model and um, why do you feel like they've made an important impact on your life? Um, cheesy answer. My, my parents are my role models. Um, you know, they, they came here and I think this is just, you know, part of being in, in an immigrant family. They made a lot of sacrifices career-wise for themselves. Um, and and they, they put us, uh, myself and my brother, you know, first before, you know, buying a Louis Vuitton bag or um, what have you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and I can only... I think that's where I get a lot of my painful loyalty to, to not only just my teammates across from me, but, you know, people that I serve is, you know, you, you, if you put them first, if you take care of them, they'll take care of you. 
Um, and I think that's where, um, that's why they have had such a big impact in my life um, is that, you know, they, they really embody this concept of, you know, serving is far more value added in the long term than actually leading. Because I, I would say, you know, parents in general are leaders of the household. And if you focus more on serving your family than leading it to whatever next frontier you think it's going to be, um, you know, you're going to have a, a pretty successful and happy family life. So. Thanks for listening to MedTech Stories. Make sure you follow us on LinkedIn and subscribe to get the latest episode on medtechstories.com or wherever you get your podcasts.